It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We've been in this series called The Storyline of Scripture. And I don't know about you, but I love just seeing the grand scope of what God is doing in His Word. Again, we're kind of painting with some broad brushstrokes and looking at the main storyline of Scripture, which all leads to the reality of Jesus Christ and His work upon the cross. Over these last several episodes, we've been looking at, again, these, what I'm calling these kingdom segments. We looked at the kingdom introduced and rejected. Last time we looked at the kingdom, people, and promise. And in this particular episode, I want to talk about the kingdom rehearsed. Uh, If we just kind of pick up the story of where we left it, after Abraham, of course, the promise passes to Isaac and then to Jacob. And you know the story. Eventually, the sons of Jacob sell Joseph off into slavery, and he goes down to Egypt. And after a whole bunch of years, because of the famine in the land, all of Israel moves down to Egypt. And it's interesting that when you look at this idea of them coming to Egypt, it's actually a beautiful foreshadow of even Jesus, because here is Jesus. He makes his way down to Egypt and you see some great little patterns between the life of Abraham, the life of Israel, and then the life of Christ. And so when you kind of flesh this all out, I want to give you a couple of passages leading up to this idea of them being slaves in Egypt. So here's Exodus chapter one, verse one through seven. It says, Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with him. And of course, we are told that after a bunch of generations, that there was this king that rose up in Egypt that did not know Joseph. And that's a fun side study that you can do on your own of why wouldn't he have known about Joseph? But what we find out is that he takes the people of Israel and turns them into slaves. And so now 400 years-ish has gone past since Egypt, or sorry, Israel went into Egypt. And now here is this man by the name of Moses. And when you look at the first couple of chapters of Exodus, you see God providing a deliverance. You see him providing something that Israel is going to need for the future. And of course, he commits murder. He runs off into Arabia and 40 years have now gone by. And in Exodus chapter three, God speaks to this man named Moses. He's 80 years old. And God says, I have chosen you to go and be my mouthpiece to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And listen to what Exodus 3, 7, and 8 says. Yahweh says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. For I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. God says, Moses, I want you to go. I've heard the cries of my people, and now's the time. Go, and I want you to be the mouthpiece. Of course, you know the story. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and through the course of these 10 plagues upon Egypt, Moses rescues, or is the means by which God rescues the people. 
It's interesting as you look at the 10 plagues of Egypt, you know, there's the water turning into blood, the frogs, lice, flies, disease on the cattle, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. None of those would have been pleasant at all. But it's interesting that every single one of those is specifically going after one of the gods of Egypt. It really is a battle between Yahweh, God of Israel, and the gods of Egypt. And Egypt says, hey, who is this God that we do not know? Who do you think you are, O Israel? And Moses says, I will show you. And so Moses stands up and literally allows God to do something through the life of Moses and through the people of Israel. And of course, it all comes to a head, a climax at the death of the firstborn, which we now know as Passover. Think about this. Egypt has taken Israel in captivity and they refuse to let him go until the very end to the death of the firstborn. And what is amazing is that when you look at this picture, this idea of the Exodus, this idea of deliverance from the chains of Egypt, the bondage of Egypt becomes a major motif that you see running throughout all of scripture. Over and over and over again, scripture harkens back to that reality of being delivered. Think about this, the deliverance from bondage through the blood of a lamb. And so just as here is Egypt in slavery to Egypt, sorry, here's Israel in slavery to Egypt. Well, well, how did they get out of that? How did they get free from their bondage? It was the blood of the lamb. And as the blood of the lamb was put upon the doorposts of that and the Passover, you know, that the angel passed over them and killed the firstborn of Egypt, that was the means of deliverance. So that idea of the blood of the lamb becomes this picture this symbol, this foreshadow that has harkened back to over and over saying, do you know what we need? We need that blood of the lamb. Do you know what we desperately need? We need that perfect sacrifice. So, so here's Israel. They, they leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and they enter into the area of Arabia where Moses was at. They go to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law, gives them the feasts. They set up the tabernacle. They come to the border of the promised land. And Moses sends up 12 spies in the book of Numbers and they spy out the land. It's everything God promised. Well, there were these giants. Well, there were these massive cities and fortifications. And 10 of the spies came back and gave a bad report. And all the people heard about the giants and the bad report. And everyone was shaking in fear. And they said, "I, I don't think we can do this. I don't think our God is strong enough to bring us into the land that he promised which is insane when you think about it. I mean, God just performed 10 plagues. God just opened up the Red Sea for them to walk on dry land. I mean, how much more of a demonstration of God's power do they need? And yet here they are just a couple of weeks past all of this and they're doubting the ability of their God. And so God says, because you refuse to walk in faith, Again, if you would like to go back and review last week's session, this idea of Abraham, the people of faith, do you realize God, again, is looking for people of faith? And because the people would rather walk in fear rather than faith, God said, fine, if you don't want to enter the land, you don't have to go. And he says, instead, for every day that you spied out the land, for for these 40 days that you spied out the land, I'm going to have you wander in the wilderness for one year. So 40 years. And everyone over the age of 20 is going to die off in the wilderness. And so for the next 40 years, they're wandering in the wilderness. And I mean, do you know how, <laughs> do you know how miserable that had to have been? Yes, God did some great things. You know, manna from the, you know, manna from the skies, water from the rocks, shoes didn't wear out. I mean, all, all that wonderful things. And yet they're in the middle of 
a horrible desert. I mean, it is like barely a shrub. There's rare, rarely a tree down in that area. They are wandering for 40 years because they did not enter the land by faith. During that whole time period, it's interesting to me that in the midst of God giving the law and the festivals, these holidays, the tabernacle, all these things that they began to rehearse year after year after year, what you begin to see is a foreshadow of something. You, you see this idea of the kingdom being rehearsed, that, that what Israel was doing every single year for Passover, all the time as they obeyed the law, as they would see the tabernacle, it was this rehearsal of the coming king. In fact, when you look at what Paul says in Colossians, you, you, he hearkens back to that whole thing, this, this idea of the festivals and the, and the feasts and the food and all, and all this kind of stuff. And he says, do you, know really what, do you know what it really was? It was a foreshadow. It was a picture of a greater reality, which leads to Jesus. Look what Paul says. This is Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. He says, therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. In other words, he's talking about all the Old Testament stuff. He says, these things are a shadow of what is to come, but their substance belongs to Christ. I love that passage. He says, hey, look, all right, good, good for you. Woo, well done. You're keeping the food and you're, you're keeping the dietary law and you have the festivals and the new moon and the Sabbath stuff. Hey, we're not downplaying that. That's important. But Paul says, do you know what that all actually focuses on? Do you, do you know why God gave us that back in the Old Testament? Did you know why as they're wandering the wilderness that God was giving them all these commands and all of these holidays and all of these, do you know why that was? Because it was a foreshadow of a greater heavenly reality and the substance of those things belonged to Jesus. Uh, this is all over the book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews is constantly contrasting the stuff of the Old Testament and saying, this is how Christ has fulfilled that or this is why he's better. For example, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, the writer says this, There are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Now listen to this. Speaking of the law, who serves as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So God shows this pattern to Moses and says, I want you to, I want you to make the tabernacle and the things and, and all the activities just like the pattern. And when you trace that theme throughout scripture, you begin to realize that the pattern that God gave Moses was actually a picture of Jesus. And he says, look at all those priestly duties that, that they're performing year after year, that they are a copy and a shadow of things that are to come. In other words, the substance of those belong to Jesus. A couple chapters later in chapter 10, it says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The law actually cannot make you perfect. The law is merely the shadow of the greater reality of Christ that is to come. So let me just give you three quick examples of how this time period became a rehearsal of them just rehearsing the reality of the king and the coming kingdom. Uh, one example of this would be the law. Uh, when you look at the law, it is showcasing the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and our need for him. 
In other words, we are not righteous. Isaiah says that the best that we can pull off in righteousness is but filthy rags. But he, God himself, is perfect righteousness. He is as God is. He's God, but he's as man ought to be. So you look at a passage like 2 Corinthians 5.21, and Paul says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, in other words, he's perfectly righteous and holy, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in other words, he took on my sin and my blemish so that I could take on his righteousness. He is perfectly righteous. And what you see in the law is God is saying, look, this is who I am. I am perfectly righteous. I am perfectly holy. I am perfectly just. And I'm calling you to be like me. Be holy as I am holy. For I am holy, says the Lord. I look at that, I'm like, ah, uh, I have a problem. I, I can't be holy, even though he's holy. What, what attempt can I have to be holy? The best I can do is filthy rags. And the conclusion of the Old Testament is, yeah, exactly. That you can't be righteous. You cannot be holy in and of yourself. But Jesus is. And because Jesus went to the cross, he was that fulfillment of perfect righteousness and holiness. And I now can be holy because he is holy, because I have him in, in my life as my holiness. I can be righteous. Why? Because he took my sin so that I could, I could have his righteousness within me. That is an amazing reality. So this rehearsal in this time period throughout the law becomes a picture of you need something beyond yourself to even obey the law, that you can't perform the perfect righteousness of the law. You need a savior. And I love what Paul says in Romans. He harkens back to that over and over and over again. So if you just want a great declaration of that, just read the book of Romans. Paul says, you can't do it, but we have Jesus who has already accomplished it. Uh, you can look at the feasts. Uh, one of the things that God did in that time period was that God gave the feasts. And so, and I, I'm not going to spend any time diving into this. We don't have time. I, I wish we could just look at each of these feasts. But the, there's four spring feasts, the Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Weeks, which is also called Pentecost. And then there are three fall feasts, the Trumpets, Atonement, and Tabernacles or Booths. What is so amazing about the festivals is that in the book of Levit Leviticus, God says, these are my feasts. So these are not feasts that God gave to Israel. These are God's feasts that they were to celebrate. And what is amazing is that as you look at any of the feasts, they portray the grand reality of the life and the work of Jesus. The first four spring feasts, Jesus perfectly fulfilled in his first coming. And when you look at the fall feasts, you start to notice that there's all these imagery that Jesus used talking about his second coming that are found in the fall feasts. That God says, you, you want a great picture of something every year as you celebrate the feasts? I want you to have this foreshadow thought. I want you to see beyond the actual event to the greater reality that is coming, which is me, says God. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, what you're going to realize is that Jesus is perfectly fulfilling these feasts. This thing that the Israelites have been doing year after year after year in rehearsal, now Jesus is on the stage and he says, you see that feast? That's me. You see that moment there? That points to me. Uh, John plays with this all the time in the book of John. He keeps mentioning the feasts, and then Jesus makes a declaration that, that I am the living water. 
You know, I am the great light. I am. I mean, he just, he's using feast language in the book of John. He uses it all over the book of Revelation. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the feasts. And if we had a lot of time, we could break this down. Uh, but for the sake of time, let me just give you a hint of one of these. You could study this out further if you'd like to. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist makes this statement. It says that on the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him. And listen to what John the Baptist said. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul picks up this theme in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb also was sacrificed. In other words, both John and Paul are saying, do you know who Jesus was? He was our Passover lamb. That, that just as a lamb gave up its life and put its blood upon the doorposts so that Israel could be freed from the bondage of Egypt. Do you realize that you and I are in bondage to Egypt? It's called sin. And that you and I need a rescuer. We need the blood of a lamb to free us from this bondage. Well, who's going to free us? Ah, Jesus, who is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God. That's not the only parallel. There are so, there's so much depth in scripture about Jesus fulfilling the Passover. He is the great Passover lamb. But again, I, I want you to just get this idea that there was this rehearsal of the kingdom, that as they were obeying the law, as they were celebrating the feasts, every single year, it was a, a reminder of something was coming. There was a king who was on the way. Let, let us rehearse the reality of his life and what he's about to do in the atoning work on the cross. Let me just give you one other illustration. It's this idea of the tabernacle. Well, when you look at the tabernacle, this it was this idea of God dwelling with us. That God wasn't just going to be in the heavenlies. God wanted to dwell with his people. And so he set up the tabernacle so that God, God's very presence, could be amidst his people. I love what John 1.14 says. It says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt. It's actually this idea or this word tabernacled, that God tabernacled with us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus tabernacled with us. He dwelt among us. In fact, when you look at this idea of the tabernacle, everything that's going on in the tabernacle, it points to the reality of Christ. I may have mentioned this before, but 50 chapters of scripture are given to this idea of the construction, the duties, the, the worship within the tabernacle. That is a huge portion of scripture. Why would God spend so much time talking about the tabernacle? Well, it's because it all points to Jesus Christ. Uh, let me just give you a few highlights. Uh, here, here's a quick illustration of the tabernacle itself. And what you see on the far left, the, the eastern gate do you realize there's only one entrance in to the tabernacle where God dwells? It's the gate. And God, or Jesus said, I am the door. I am the gate. That, that there is this altar of sacrifice. And what's interesting is that the writer of Hebrews says that he's both the altar and he's the high priest and he's a sacrifice. You have this labor for washing. And Paul says, do you realize that it's him and his word that we are cleansed and washed and renewed? That, that, that as you come into the inner place, you have, you know, on, on the, uh, I think it's on the south side, you, you have the menorah, which is the only light that is in the inner place. And Jesus says, I'm the light. You, you have the showbread table and Jesus says, I am the bread. The, the, you have this veil separating the holy place from the most 
holy place. And Jesus says, I am the veil. Well, the writer of Hebrews says that the veil is his flesh. You, you have then in the holy place, or you have the altar of incense, which is all about Jesus. You have the ark, which is all about Jesus. The mercy seat, which is all about Jesus. The things in the ark, it's all about Jesus. Do you realize that the reality of, of the law, the reality of the festivals, the reality of the tabernacle, the, this whole thing during this time of this wandering season as they leave Egypt, this whole season is all about rehearsing the coming king and the great reality of his kingdom. Again, li listen to this passage in Hebrews 10.1. I already read it, but listen to it afresh. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the things, the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Again, the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's not that the sacrifices were bad. They were great. God gave them to us. Woo, praise the Lord for the sacrifices but there's a greater sacrifice. Why don't we do sacrifices in today's churches? It's because we've had the one final sacrifice. Jesus himself is that sacrificial lamb. And though God instituted the sacrifices, praise the Lord, even though he instituted the law and the festivals and he gave us the tabernacle, those were merely shadows. They were merely pictures. They were, they were this idea of, okay, let's rehearse this thing over and over so that when Jesus came on the scene, we would go, oh, that's what they were all pointing to. And the sad reality was, is that when Jesus did come on the scene, they missed it. The Pharisees who were so schooled in the Old Testament, for whatever reason, just did not see that grand reality that all that they were doing was pointing to Jesus. In John chapter five, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and he says this, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus says, you're searching the Old Testament. You're, you're studying it. You, you, hey, you perform the sacrifices. You're doing the law. You're, you're, you're keeping all this stuff. You're keeping all the right things. But Jesus says, do you not realize that the fulfillment of all of that is standing in front of you? Here I am, says Jesus, and you are missing the very source of life. That doesn't give you life. That doesn't, yes, it covers, but it doesn't actually atone for your sin. Jesus says, here I am. And they missed him. Uh, a few passages later at the end of John chapter five, they're arguing about Moses. Hey, we'll take Moses. And Jesus says, do you not realize everything about the Moses thing is about me? Well, listen to what Jesus says. He says, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you have believed Moses, you would have believed me. Get this. For Moses wrote about me. Do you realize how crazy of a statement that is? Here is Jesus saying, do you know what Moses wrote? Do you know what Genesis through Deuteronomy is all about? Me. Genesis through Deuteronomy is all about the Messiah, says Jesus. And here you are, you're memorizing, you're studying, you're rehearsing it, and yet you're missing the very thing it points to. Uh, let me just give you one quick picture as it relates to our life. I, I love this idea of the rehearsal. And again, I don't think we have to go back to the law. I don't think we have to go back to the festivals. I don't think we have to go back to the tabernacle. I don't think any of those things are bad. And if you want to celebrate, hey, praise the Lord. As long as we realize that they are fulfilled and they point to Jesus. But when you look at this idea again of... Egypt to the wilderness, to the promised land, 
you see an incredible picture, this foreshadow of our lives as believers. Again, I already mentioned this, but here we are in bondage to sin. And Egypt, interestingly, throughout the Old Testament, is often used as a symbol for bondage and slavery. So just as Israel was enslaved in bondage to Egypt, so too we are enslaved to sin. Well, how did they get out of Egypt? By the blood of the lamb. Well, how do we get out of sin? By the blood of the lamb, Jesus. And isn't it interesting that, that when they left Egypt, the first place they went to was the wilderness. Now, the wilderness, though they wandered there for 40 years, the wilderness is a necessary pass-through to get to the promised land. You can't get to the promised land without going through the wilderness. And when you look at what the wilderness symbolizes throughout the entire of the Old Testament, you begin to recognize that it is a place of testing of faith. Over and over, there's this hearkening of either go back to the wilderness because God needs to test your faith, or in Numbers, when they're on the border of the promised land and they refuse to enter in because of the giants and the big cities, the reason they're unable to enter in is because they decide to walk in fear rather than faith. And so often too, we here in our spiritual lives, we've been set free by the blood of the lamb, and yet we refuse to enter into the fullness and the reality of the promised land. The promised land is not heaven. And this is going to probably ruin a whole bunch of Southern gospel songs. <laughs> but there's this, in the Southern gospel songs, it's like, I cross the Jordan River, you know, when I die and I, I enter into the promised land. That is not the picture. When you look at the promised land, it's actually the idea in the New Testament of the Christian life. It's the spirit-filled life. It's that promise of the Father of the Holy Spirit is related or correlated to the promised land. In the Old Testament, it was a piece of property. In the New Covenant, it is a person. It's the Holy Spirit. And just as that promise of the Father that we are to live and dwell in, and again, it doesn't mean that the enemy is fully removed because when they entered in the line of promise, there, there were 31 hostile empires that they had to deal with. And just like in our lives, when I come to Christ, there are these attitudes and habits that God now has to deal with. He has to deal with the pride and the lust and the greed and, and the envy and all those things that, that tend to tear at us. Am I instantly perfected? No, there's a work of sanctification and those enemies have to be removed. So you get this, again, get this idea. I'm enslaved just like they were to Egypt. I'm enslaved to sin. How am I set free? By the blood of the lamb. What is my destination? The promise. But there's this place in the middle called the wilderness, and it's a testing of faith. And what you see for Israel is that they didn't pass the test. In fact, because they chose to walk in fear rather than faith, God said, fine, you'll wander in the wilderness until that entire generation dies off. And the next generation, maybe they will enter in the promise land by faith. I know God does a lot of neat stuff in the wilderness. Again, you know, manna from the sky, water, uh, water from the rock, you know, quell in the bush, shoes don't wear out. There's a lot of neat things that are happening, but we weren't made for the wilderness. We were made for the promised land. And just as I look at our modern culture, it's intriguing to me, you know, and I, the statistic changes all the time, but, but it's like upwards of 70 plus percent of high schoolers leave the faith or leave the church when they enter into college. Why is, why, why are we losing so many of our young people? And I think one of the key reasons for that is actually in this picture that most of the modern church is not living in the promised land, they're living in the wilderness. That we are actually not walking by faith, we're walking in fear. And as such, we're wandering the wilderness, we're saying, yay, God, and hey, we can point to some stuff, you know, hey, manna, water, quail, shoes don't wear out. 
yeah, God's doing stuff. But do you realize that the wilderness is miserable? It is a desert. You were not made to live in the wilderness. The wilderness is to force a decision. And what the wilderness will do will either cause you to go back to Egypt or it'll cause you to press into the reality of the promised land. In fact, you see that going on in the book of Exodus and Numbers and, and Deuteronomy where the people are grumbling and complaining against Moses saying, can we just go back? Can we go back to Egypt? Because at least there we had leeks and onions, which never sounded that exciting to me. But, but hey, let's go back and let's have the leeks and the onions because that's at least better than the wilderness. Yeah. And you realize that if our generation is, as for the most part, the church is living in the wilderness, do you realize we don't have much to offer this next generation? So it's not a surprise to me that, that there's this whole generation who are, is looking at the modern church living in the wilderness going, you know what, I'll take, I'll take Egypt. Can I encourage you not to be satisfied with the wilderness, but rather press into the grand reality of the promise, that promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, that we've been talking about over the last couple of episodes. Do you realize that there's an incredible reality? You can be free from the power of sin in your life. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. And when you're tested in your faith, do you realize you can and live Live in the reality of the abundance, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise full of the Spirit of God. Don't take Egypt. Don't just be passive and keep dwelling in the wilderness. Rather, live in the full reality of the promise that God has purchased for us. So get this trajectory. There was this kingdom that got established, but the people rejected it. So God chose a man by the name of Abraham, and he was a man of faith, and the people of promise. And God says, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And over the course of the next 400 years, as they leave Egypt, do you realize that there is this rehearsal going on of the king is coming? Hey, there's this king that's going to be coming. Hey, there, there's this one that's coming and he's going to reestablish his kingdom and all the feasts and all the festivals and all the holidays and, and all, the, all the law and all the, the, the tabernacle stuff, all of that became a picture of the coming Christ. Can I encourage you to, to, when you read the Old Testament, don't just, yes, we need to stay in the context of what's happening in those passages, but I want you to see the grand reality that the storyline of scripture all focuses on Jesus Christ. I've been mentioning this in every episode, but if you'd like to take this idea deeper on my personal podcast, the Deeper Christian Podcast, for each of these episodes that I've been walking through in our series, I'm taking an episode, I'm looking at one of the great glimpses or Christophanies of Jesus in that part of the storyline of scripture. So if you want to look at this idea from Egypt all the way through the promised land and say, okay, well, how do else, how, where else do I see Jesus in that? Well, I really want you or I encourage you to listen to this week's episode on the Deeper Christian Podcast, where I dive even deeper into a few of my favorite Christophanies showing Jesus from this section. Well, until next time, when we keep looking at this idea, in fact, Strangely, it's going to sound crazy. We're going to try to finish the entirety of the Old Testament in the next episode. I, I want you to get this, this idea. Again, it's the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here. It's rejected, but God has chosen a person of faith and given him a promise. And then God has the people rehearsing over and over with this expectancy that the king is coming. And in our lives, the king has come. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. 
and our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.